Alexander McLeod was born in Inverness, Cape Breton, and raised in Windsor, Ontario. His award-winning stories have appeared in many of the leading Canadian and American journals and have been selected for the Journey Prize Anthology. He holds degrees from University of Windsor, University of Notre Dame, and McGill. He currently lives in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and teaches at St. Mary's University. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Question about beginnings and endings. The beginning of your first story, Miracle Mile, I think is terrific. I wonder if you could read it. Okay. Just the first paragraph or so. Okay. This was the day after Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. You remember that. It was a moment in history. Not like Kennedy or the planes flying into the World Trade Center. Not up at that level. This was something lower. More like Ben Johnson, back when his eyes were that thick yellow color and he tested positive in soul after breaking the world record in the hundred. You might not know exactly where you were standing or exactly what you were doing when you first heard about Tyson or about Ben, but when the news came down, I bet it stuck with you. When Tyson bit off Holyfield's ear, that cut right through the everyday clutter. All the papers and the television shows ran the exact same pictures of Tyson standing there in his black trunks with the blood in his mouth. It seemed like everything else that happened that day had to be related back to this, back to Mike and what he had done. You have to remember, this was before Tyson got the tattoo on his face, and the rematch with Holyfield was supposed to be his big comeback, a chance to go straight and be legitimate again. Nobody thinks about that now. Now, the only thing you see when you look back is Mike moving in for the kill, the way his cheek brushes up almost intimately against Evander's face just before he breaks all the way through and gives in to his rawest impulse. Then the tendons in his neck bulge out and his eyes pop wide open and his teeth come grinding down. Are you writing for someone like yourself because this is exactly what went on in your mind or are you purposefully trying to appeal to a particular kind of reader or, or what? I wasn't really, I wasn't really thinking about uh, particular readers. I was interested in the moment itself, as as a moment that was startling, arresting. Not only for sports fans. That's that's kind of the thing I was interested in. Because yes, I follow uh, sports, and general people might not. They might not be interested in that, but they would still know about Tyson because yeah. this was one of those moments where sport sort of shook free of sport yeah. and it became so fascinating or arresting or terrifying or whatever it was that you didn't have to have any interest in boxing, you didn't have yeah. any, you might just have, as I was trying to point out there, a kind of interest in human beings and then to see that happen and to me one of the fascinating things about it was it happened in such a public way like there might be there might be private brawls, might be horrible acts of aggression happening behind closed doors everywhere in the world. But the fact was not that Tyson did it, but where he did it and the way it was suddenly inserted into everybody in the world's consciousness all at the same time. There was this thing that happened and it was something that made you pause and that was what I was interested in. And the, the confines of a boxing ring, that's never been done before. I mean, it may have been done by cavemen. <laughs> you think of the gentlemanly sport. So it's it's extraordinary too. Like I suppose that's one of the reasons the cameras, all that that was fascinating to me because sport is so highly produced. There's directors and people calling for the camera shots, and even then, with all the apparatus around it, 
it kind of went to a place beyond language. What could you say? Like, no, no boxing expert has any insight into this. It can almost not be spoken of. You just had to see it, witness it. The idea that it was being seen live, like immediately, yeah. that was something that I uh, was fascinated by. It was also like an act of desperation. It probably didn't go through his mind that he'd get, or maybe it did, that he'd be disqualified and this would be the end of it. But I suppose what's, what's so interesting about picking something like this is that it opens up so many questions in the reader's mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's exact. That's why I used it. That It wasn't that he did it. It was that he couldn't not do it. Of course he knew, like at some brain level, but you're not going to get away with this, especially not here. And yet he couldn't not do it. And so he gives in to something that is always there, is always present, but it's almost always contained. And in that case, the thing that was always contained became blatantly public. And when it did, it, it, it caused a certain sort of shockwave to go yeah. through a lot of things. The desperation is it, because like, he's a millionaire. and he's, There are people literally invested in the fight. And all of it just, you know, just exploded. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I want to focus on this story because mm -hmm. I think it's so powerful. He does this. It goes beyond the rules, obviously. So he's breaking the rules. But it's, it's not quite like uh, Roberto Duran's yeah. No Mas, who's at the same place, possibly, mm -hmm. but he doesn't go that extra, mm -hmm. almost criminal place. Yeah, well, sport is just fascinating for all those moments. You see it all the time, like the Bertuzzi hit, or McSorley, or in the NFL. Helmet to helmet. Helmet to helmet. Are you supposed to keep these hits above, like everyone's saying, don't hit anyone in the knees, like respect yeah. the game, or yeah. hits in the corner, or, you know, wow pitch. There's just the kind of thing, like, like we're playing this sport, and this is a spectacle for, this is a business for people watching at home, and yet it does deal very often with raw desires, I guess, raw emotions in a certain way. That's definitely something I was trying to explore in the story itself, was when you specialize, when you give yourself over, then the rest of the world fades away and there's almost nothing left but you and the task. So if the task becomes, I'm going to beat this guy up, it doesn't matter that, no, I'm not beating this guy up, I'm competing for the whatever, you know, mm -hmm. for, it wasn't even a title, it was just like legitimacy, and he couldn't kind of keep those two balls in the air at the same time, couldn't keep the quest for legitimacy and beat this guy up. It was Balance. like his animal instinct took over. That's definitely part of it, or, or maybe not even that animalistic, it's just sad, or maybe he knew it was lost and it wasn't going to turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out. Here's a quote, and, a, and maybe after this you can take us through this particular story called Miracle Mile. You have to let people do what they do. When you get right down to it, even the craziest ritual and the wildest superstition are based on somebody's version of solid, real solid logic. That moment's with the runners, and they are, they're in the hotel room, and they're doing their preparations for the big race. That is literally trying to apply order. So you say, like, I always wear my lucky socks. Or <laughs> what I like to do is have scrambled eggs for breakfast, because every time I have scrambled eggs for breakfast, I have a good performance. So that's logical, even though it's illogical. Well, it's the way people create a system of meaning that's intensely personal to mm. themselves. And I think everybody has that sort of feeling. They say, well, I put on my red shirt. You know, when I put on my red shirt, I feel good. And mm. I don't like that blue shirt. Like, of course, there's nothing logical about that. Mm. But there is 
that result that you do feel better. That makes better. it logical. Exactly. It? So right. they say like, when I'm doing this, I feel better. I know I do. The index is only me. No one, no one from the outside would say, there he is in that good feeling shirt. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they don't feel the shirt the way you do. Yeah. So I found that idea of the, the guys in the room getting ready. And when he says that, everybody gets ready in their own way. So some people like to listen to music and some people want pure silence. What's better, music or silence? I don't know. It all depends on the person. So mm-hmm. almost everybody is that way. They like their books in a certain order. Is this objectively better? Well, it's the one that works for me. It's the one that I like. And that idea of the index of individual care, that's something that I find fascinating, the way people deploy their care. Like they have an object of and when they care about it, they do certain things. Maybe other people think the thing they care about is useless. That doesn't matter. If they care about it, it matters. Well, in fact, you're fortunate to have something to care for that much. It's a gift, isn't it? Definitely. Um, lots of the stories in the book are kind of about that. I need significance. Yes, so I am fortunate. I'm not like someone wandering around, oh, what am I going to care about today? Well, if I just watch TV, someone will tell me, I'll care about Britney Spears today because that's Madison Avenue wants me to care about. It's a pandemic, isn't it? This search for meaning and what am I going to do with my life? Absolutely, that's what the story is about. People who train to run the 1500 and 336, mm-hmm. they never wonder what life's about. <laughs> they have no quest for meaning. They know what's meaningful. In their world, they know the day you stop being a 338 guy and you become a 335 guy, that is a significant day. You need a picture of that day. Phone calls will arrive on that day because it means something. It means something to a, a small, yeah, exactly, a group of people who share that same and passion. Their, right, and their affection and their desire, and in some cases their desperation, mm-hmm. is what makes that matter. So it has good sides and bad sides. It leads to the creation of communities, which is nice. So for those runners, it leads to pure friendships that are honest and kind of, I think, uh, noble in some ways. But it also leads them into a kind of antisocial place mm-hmm. because the only body, people who can understand them themselves. So they have a different community formed over here. Kind of exclusive. And right. So like, if, if the only people you're friends with run 100 miles a week, well, you don't have very many friends. And you have a lot of people who you find objectionable. So it's the same way for people who are like pure jazz aficionados. Mm. Like you can't drive in the car with them. Like you try to turn on the radio, they're like, ah! Because their love for their one thing is so complete that it flips around and becomes a sort of hatred for something else. They love their music so much in a nice way that every time they hear <laughs> Britney Spears, not to pick on Britney, but every time they hear Britney, it's like an assault on their brain and, mm-hmm. and they can't even allow it to be in the mall or something, you know, they, because, because they've moved into this other place and it has a good side and bad side. What I find interesting is to, toward the end of the book, the main character realizes that he's losing interest in this and, and of course it upsets his friend and then in contrast to the beginning of the story, it's a, an open avenue. There's some kids that give him the finger and his friend charges after them and you're not sure exactly what might have happened. Has he, has he gone over the edge? It's, as I say, it's quite a contrast to the beginning. So I wonder if you could reflect on what you're doing there. I do. Uh, the ending is purposely, you know, it leaves us at the moment of kind of the thing that can't be said. It's witnessed but can't be said. Because earlier on, the narrator says, 
well, this is the image I keep of my friend, and it's a more positive image. It's an image of escape. It's an image of survival. It's an image almost of, like, power. Like, he, he used his power and didn't get hit by a train. Mm-hmm. He says, that's the image I keep of him. And when he tells us that that's the image that he keeps, it's because there's another image that he doesn't want to keep. And he can not tell you it, but it's there. It's like our friend Mike Tyson. Those two images, which might seem very different, are actually getting close to the same thing. It's those kids, like, the more I've, I've been kind of living with that story a little bit now for the last year, mm-hmm. and I think at first I thought it was all about running, but now I think it's all about communication. He couldn't communicate what it was. So when the kids say, like, the, I'm faster than you are, you mm-hmm. are, like, they're just joking. They're just like, you're a loser. Well, they, they make fun of his, his tight pants. Yeah. yeah. Possibly calling him out as a yeah. homosexual, perhaps. Yeah, that's there, too. Uh, the narrator says, they didn't know. There's no way on earth they could have known what they were doing. Mm-hmm. This is not the person and this is not the moment to do that because he's just come from the mountaintop. The most amazing thing that could ever, ever happen in his life has just happened five minutes ago. Yeah. And now some punk or whatever he is. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that the summit of significance is up here and down here, no one gives a crap. No one understands. Nobody gives a crap. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get at. I was trying to get at this notion that, like, that's just true. They happen simultaneously. Kids in the backyard don't care about your miracle. That idea of significance. But also the rage. There's the rage that, number one, other people don't give a crap or Mm -hmm. don't understand Mm -hmm. this passion. Mm -hmm. And that violence, obviously, an aggression that, what, is pent up in this kind of personality? Is that what you're getting at? No, I think that anything that we care about in a significant way can only be significant, almost in direct proportion to how much we pour into it. So, like this is every murder, every violent crime in the world where someone says, well, you know, that guy down the street, he killed my child. And you know what I did to him? A, B, C, D, E, F. Because the object of my care, that's the thing I'm most interested in, I think, is don't don't mess with the object of my care, whatever it is, my beloved partner, my children, my writing, my, my, writing, my country, my religion, turf of, you know, pick your war zone. My but, God. My God. So, I made God significant. I did by my by my faith and my right. choice. Exactly. And I had to put it somewhere as you say like I had to put my faith, I had to put my love into a vessel and I did. And now you've come along and smashed it. And when you do that, you're going to get the full force of me. It's going to come out. And so I was interested in the runners because running you can't fake it. Like some mm. things you can fake. If you're a super duper three-point shooter, you might be 20 pounds overweight and still able to hit them. But nobody can fake running. Like doesn't matter how much talent you have, unless you put the miles in, or unless you've taken the drugs. It, right? Like that's the same thing. I, I found that very interesting about Johnson or about anybody in the Olympic Village. That desperation of the Tour de France guys—they know, they know. But they're so desperate to be faster. They would do those trade-offs all the time. They ask Olympic athletes, would you give 10 years of your life to be two seconds mm-hmm. faster? And across the board, they all say yes, because they have invested. Like, mm-hmm. that's the structure of meaning. They, of course, 10 years of my life from 80 to 90, they can't imagine being 80. <laughs> so, so sure, because what is important right now, the most important thing I'm ever going to do in my life is happening in two days. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be in the Olympic final again. 
So if anything is going to happen, I can tell you the time. They can tell you two years in advance, the most important moment in their life. It's going to be 2.30 p.m. Uh, like they know when the final is going to be held in the London Olympics. Like, that's out. And when they know that, they've been pointed at it for a decade. So I find people who are honestly kind of committed to things like that to be interesting characters anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Alexander McLeod, whose book of short stories, Light Lifting, has just recently been shortlisted for Canada's Giller Prize. So why do these people interest you then? Well, I was an athlete when I was in my undergraduate years of my education. I made lots of solid friends in there. None of us were ever <laughs> like these guys. And I also was interested in kind of the relationship people have with their work. So the book is full of stories about work, about what your job demands of you and the way you make your job or your job makes you. I just found it interesting that sort of deal, like a real, almost like a contract, a deal people have to sign with their own labor or their own energy. Like not to make it seem ideological, just saying this is my energy, it's going to be deployed in this way, I'm going to be a secretary, or I'm going to drive a forklift, or I'm going to be a secretary of state. Like yeah. whatever I'm going to be, I'm going to deploy my energy in a certain way. So I found that characters who had a kind of consistent relationship with their vision of themselves and the way they deployed their energy to be fascinating. because. As you say, like no, there's nobody. I'm sorry, almost nobody in that book wandering around the mall, wondering what they're going to believe in tomorrow. Those characters exist. They're just not in that book. It's, it's a central question in all of our lives, and that is: Are we going to do what we love, no matter what, or are we going to compromise and make money so that we can do what we love in our spare time? And that is such a significant question. Mm-hmm. And almost all of those people in there, sometimes they're forced to compromise. They're forced into dramatic compromises. Mm. But they normally, in there, don't suffer from a lack of vision. Which makes them compelling and... Uh, for some, or crazy. <laughs> or crazy yeah. for other people. Well, and difficult to live with, too, I imagine. Well, everyone kind of thinks that they're crazy people, but they're not crazy. They're just, they kind of just have a... A clearer sense, I think, of what it is that they're trying to accomplish, I guess. Mm-hmm. And what are you trying to accomplish? I don't know. I would, I would think w- what you said earlier, I, I am definitely interested in, in that relationship between uh, doing and not doing. So I was interested in producing this sort of book that would be the kind of book I would want to read, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was also interested in examining that relationship between doing and not doing, because I found that to be, at some base level, the most unambiguous uh, comparison. You know, I can do this or I can't do it. And if I do it, a certain set of consequences falls. And if I don't do it, something else happens. So there are many moments in the book that are caught up in moments of choice. And that was what I was I was trying to look at the nature of choice, I think. Mm-hmm. More fundamental action. What makes an action significant? Mm-hmm. What motivates that? Right. Or in some cases, if there's a woman in there who's terrified of water, in some ways we're motivated in a kind of positive direction to move towards a certain goal. And then in other ways, we're pushed or compelled by negative things like terror or fear. So I was just continually trying to approach it from different angles on what is significant and how we can kind of grapple with those issues. So what you're doing is riffing on this general theme from the perspective of a bunch of different people who are similar. 
Well, everyone keeps telling me how, that they're all so different. I'm not trying to tell the same story seven times. And I was trying to make sure that kind of a whole bunch of different people are in the book. So there's stories about elderly people who might seem the opposite of athletes. But I was interested in the way that elderly people have to make those deals as well. They have to make they have to have action or inaction and decision all the time. And so then I have people who work in plants where they almost seem not to have any agency left at all. Or I have kids playing ball hockey. And I have young parents who are there with their with their sick babies. Taking life. And they are doing that. So I don't know that it's always the same story. Like everybody, I think everyone does it. Everyone is struggling for, for some relationship with significance. With you know, not necessarily like, oh, what's the meaning of the universe, but you know, what am I going to do or not do? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty basic. What am I going to leave? What legacy am I going to leave? I don't know if they're thinking at at that high level yet. Uh, maybe the track guys are, because a legacy sort of leaves this idea that it's social. You know, like a legacy is something for other people to think about you. <laughs> so for the runners, it's obvious. So the writer, the your book is here for uh, forever. Yeah. It's Stunningly strange, strange, strange for me to even think about that. But uh, there it is. It exists. It's only existed for one month, so I'm not, I'm not a practiced hand at any of this. So I don't really know. I don't know. I don't. I can't. You say maybe. I don't know if it's going to exist forever. But Ted Hughes wrote something quite beautiful about writing. The whole purpose of writing is to trigger the uh, imagination into action. Mm-hmm. That's a nice quote. Isn't it? Yeah. And obviously one of the best ways of doing that is through metaphor, mm. because your brain grapples with comparison and distinction. Ab- absolutely. And so, again, talking about our story, <laughs> uh, uh, the Miracle Mile, there's a big tunnel right on the front cover. Yeah. Yeah. These two runners, these two uh, daredevils, charge through this tunnel in advance of the train. So what are we looking at there? Are we looking at death? As a metaphor, there's a lot of images of light in the uh, book, which is kind of one of the reasons why I think they ended up with light lifting as the title. In that scene, the boys are running in the tunnel and they have this idea about the light because uh, they are running in the dark. And they have this notion, superstition or a... Uh, rumor that's kind of floating around the punks who do this if you ever get if that light like ever touches your body well you're done for because this thing is too close to you mm. by now uh so i was definitely interested in those ancient old uh images of darkness and light and running in the dark it is i've done it sometimes it is kind of a crazy thing to do because you have almost no idea even of motion like, again, significance, like you're just doing it, but you can't tell if you're even moving. And there's a moment in that image where they're coming, and then when you feel the ground coming Going up, up yeah. yeah, that's just, oh, progress. But you can just feel it because the ground is different, and you can feel that inside your body. So one thing I was trying to get at, and the way I use the tunnel in the story, is that we know they make it out okay, because it's a flashback. Like, he's telling you, he's telling you. Like So there shouldn't really be any tension in it at all, because mm-hmm. we know... Like, when he starts to tell it, when we were kids, we used to do this. So everybody knows, or should know, that Burner's not going to get hit by that train. He's not. He's going to make it out. It's a flashback. But still, as it's happening, I was trying to get at, like, those isolated moments in an existence where when it's happening, no one's sure of, how, of what the outcome's going to be. Mm-hmm. So the metaphor or the image 
that I was really looking at was kind of contingency and fragility and little split second things. Mm. Kid could have been dead in the tunnel. Kid, kid could have been dead in the tunnel ten years ago before any of this story that we're following is taking place. So I was interested in that idea of like these skinny, fragile, stupid kids, and mm. they're in there with the freaking locomotive, and the locomotive is like force coming down on them yeah. and uh, unstoppable right and and not even with intention mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like and that's something i was that's something i was interested in not all, evil all the way through the book too it's it's not evil because i have things in there about sunburns the mm. sun is not trying to burn you for fun it just does so yeah, incidentally a very very uh, effective conveyance of of the sheer pain of the thing again there's the beginning of the first page of light lifting He'd have to rip at it quickly like a bandage, and that would tear away any of the healing that had already happened. Half his back would go. <laughs> Just reading that is like is yeah. like listening to <laughs> nails on a chalkboard. Yay! You know that's so. it. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think we'll put that as the pull quote on the book. <laughs> it's like it's like listening <laughs> to fingernails on the chalkboard. Congratulations! What an achievement! Yeah, yeah, but I know I was trying to get that squirming, that horrible pain of the sunburn. Right. But like the locomotive, the sun is like that, where the sun is not out to get you, but it'll get you if you don't pay attention. And so that notion of fragility was really important to me. Like those kids, they couldn't be skinnier or paler or stupider. <laughs> and yeah. they're in there against something that's not necessarily out to get them, but it will annihilate them. Well, that's a, the other thing, too, is there was a bit of foreshadowing. I kept expecting something pretty grim to happen to this guy, and the way you left it was, well, you know, if that uh, unstoppable train has anything uh, to do with it, yeah. then he, you know what's happening. Yeah. I think that also readers, you can give them more credit than people sometimes do. Like, they can do it. In my, my research, I'm often interested in the non-narrated Certain things, you do not need to narrate them. We get it. Mm. Uh, and it's almost like saying to the reader, you get it. And, and in a couple moments in the stories, there are people saying, like, well, you know, and then it happened. And we can, we know what the it is. Like, mm. you don't need ten paragraphs yeah. of it. Like, it yeah. is it. <laughs> and, and we know. You leave it to the imagination. And that can sometimes be even more disturbing. You talk about tension, interested in stories that have lots of tension. This leads to the question, first of all, you talk uh, eloquently about themes and issues, ideas that, that attract you. Did that come first? Like, this is a big theme and I need to fit in the pieces? Or is it a combination of, okay, I've written these stories and, oh, look, they all seem to deal with, so I'm learning about myself. I think it's more B than A, because I wrote them over such a long time, yeah. and I thought they were all totally separate projects. I never yeah. thought they were a book. So really it is a sort of autobiographical, self-revelatory experience that you've gone through. Yep, definitely. Putting a book together was very strange, because I've been working on it for such a long time. When I started working on it, like I wasn't married, and I didn't have any kids, and I didn't have a job, and and so I was writing some of those stories as a person almost alone in the universe, sitting in a room by myself. Mm. And then uh, over time, get two more, you know, get two more, get two more. And then uh, seven, like seven is not a very big number, but there they are, seven. And when we were trying to work on order or with my publisher, saying, well, we'll put this one first and this one second, or, or however we're going to do it, that's when, that's when I started to see, like, those weird circuits, like, 
little mm. little sparks of connection like arcing from point A to point C that I would never have imagined, obviously. And that was fascinating to me to see how that happened. And again, like no one would ever ask me about stories together. So I've only been ever asked about them together for about the last, you know, 10 days. The critical faculty is so different from mm. the creative faculty. So you're like, well, look at that, you know. Look at laying, that. laying a pattern on top of this. Certainly not trying to make a pattern, but I, wasn't, I was never chasing a theme. I was trying to write images, I think, trying to write mm. certain, like the train thing or like the girl jumping off the roof. or Like I saw certain images that I wanted to have in there, and then I kind of wrote scenes and characters back from the image because I thought the image was the thing that was going to stick or not stick. What do you want the reader to go through, think about, or reflect on, or take away as some sort of help, helpful message, if, if any? I was thinking about readers a lot. I didn't want them to be able to guess at the end from the beginning. Do you want to keep them guessing? Well, like if I wanted there to be a kind of pace in the stories that would compel them forward, but to a conclusion that you weren't sure of. I know I want to keep going, but I don't know where I'm going. This is where short stories have have the advantage over novels. I definitely believe that the, the great thing about a short story is the reader and the writer sign a deal at the beginning that, okay, as soon as you open this, you sit here till you're done. I got you all the way through. Mm. And they sit down and say, I'm going to read your whole story. So they don't, like, they don't start it at 9 o'clock and then come back two weeks later and try and pick it up on page. It's only... 20 or 30 pages so they can do it in setting. So that gives you the possibility to pack in a little more intensity if you're careful with it. You know? mm -hmm. So I was definitely trying to do that. What about on a larger level, like <laughs> helping them figuring out the meaning of their life? Oh, I don't... Nothing I, like that? I had no ambition for that. <laughs> you are quoted as saying that you're interested in people who have put in a huge effort and yet still don't make the team. Yeah. What's that all about? Well, that comes back to process and to the idea that there are disciplines in the world. So I say, like, what's your discipline? So someone would say, well, I'm uh, in the humanities. You might say, oh, there's several disciplines. It's multidisciplinary. So they say, well, I'm, I, will, I work inside the discipline of Renaissance history or some field of particle physics or something. Mm -hmm. Inside our discipline, we talk like this. Inside a discipline, systems of recognition, perhaps. So like saying, inside the discipline of distance running, there's the world championships team, there's a commonwealth gold medalist, there's an Olympic gold medalist. We'd all rather be the Olympic gold medalist, and then the world championships, and then the commonwealth, it descends like that. And there's a way of making a mark in that field. Exactly. But the discipline is bigger than the system of recognition. My siblings are musicians. But no one's going to win music. Like, music is a discipline. It's massive. So I'm interested in, I'm just interested in people who play the violin at home by themselves, for 40 years and mm. they're never going to go to Carnegie Hall and play the violin. The violin itself is their discipline. They're not doing it in competition with them. They're anybody. not doing it. So like there are lots of people out there in almost everything, every small beautiful thing that ever gets done. Lots of people care for their own gardens in a certain way. They're always weeding their garden with beautiful flowers. Back to care again. Mm -hmm. Back to care. So the people who train for 12 years and don't make the team are no less significant than the people who made the team mm. because the discipline absorbs them all and they all understand each other. That's the beautiful thing about discipline. The finest symphony <laughs> musician, like just to pick musicians as an example, somebody who plays, who has played as a professional musician in New York all their lives, they have more in common with somebody who's 
just one year into piano lessons than they do with probably Mike Tyson. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Different disciplines. But these people are in the musical discipline and, and they see it because they don't, they just don't suffer from that, as you say, sort of epidemic of uncertainty. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I'm put in mind of a Mr. Ramsey in uh, To the Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful line that uh, Mrs. Ramsey uses to describe him. It's something like he knew that he couldn't get to, that he was an R mm-hmm. instead of a Z. Mm-hmm. I think he's kind of melancholy and sad because he's not that way. Mm-hmm. But that's not what interests you. It's what interests you is, is just the endeavor. Mm-hmm. And there's nobility and kind of peace in the endeavor, unless you're tortured by the endeavor. Like some people are tortured by it. So runners, again, we know to make a blanket statement about Canadians. There's nobody in this country right now who can legitimately contend for the gold medal in the marathon. Like, nobody, not a single Canadian walk coast to coast is in the game with the Kenyans right now. But look at all the marathoners we have, right? So nobody in Canada is actually going to win. Nobody. Even Reed Coulson, like the guy who's the number one marathoner in Canada, he's great, but he's not going to run 205 tomorrow. And yet, I go to Toronto, there, there are thousands and thousands of people running the marathon. Why are they even bothering? Well, why are they even bothering? None of them are going to be good at it. Oh, mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter doesn't matter. They're doing something about index of the self. So they're measuring themselves based on not an objective like A to Z. Like we know where Z is. It's 205. Yeah. And these people run 405. They're running. Like the Kenyans are done and have watched a full <laughs> feature length film before you come across. And yet the people who come across in four hours are crying with joy that they did it. And because so much more uh, accomplished than people like me or, yeah. or any, anyone else that, that, that doesn't go there. Exactly. Yeah. But they're in the discipline. Running provides space for all. Music provides space, space for, for all. all. Yeah. Literature provides space for all. And that is a, it's like a kind of one of the rare sort of miracles of, of life. Like, I imagine for you, like, thank God for literature. Mm. Like, thank God literature came along uh, mm. <laughs> because there's infinite room in it. There's room for specialization. There's room for uh, expansion into other things, too. Mm. Uh, or I feel that way about music sometimes. Sometimes I'm listening to music, like the craziest, eclectic, ridiculous juxtaposition of songs, and I like them all. I'm yeah. like, thank you for music, because it did this, and sport and all those things, all the same thing, kind of a richness of, of possibility inside of them. So. Finally, you've been quoted as saying you try, it was a bit trite, but... Mm-hmm not what you said, but just the whole concept of being the best that you can be. But it's obvious that, uh, particularly in the Miracle Mile, that you really have worked. And there's some, some very funny, and it's very difficult to be funny, lines in this, in this story where you do sound like a really kind of clever, smart buddy of mine. So the question is, trying to replicate life, uh, or at least the relationship between you and a really good buddy or me and some of my good friends. Well, that story is, I think, about friendship in a certain way. And friendship is, again, one of those great things. It's one of those great enriching things makes the world a better place. I don't know. When I'm trying to write a story, I really do have to you know, take it one sentence at a time and, and just try and hit that tone, I guess, is what you're talking about. It's not fake. It's invisible. It's transparent. It, it permeates it's just, everything. Yeah. It's just hey, that's like it was when we hung out in that hotel room. Yeah, 
I'm fascinated by stylistic things like that. So when you say, well, this one I wanted to feel like this. And if you're going to do a first-person narrator, well, what kind of character is he going to be? That's different than doing the kind of third... Like, that story would not work at all as a third-person story, like mm. kind of watching them from the outside. Mm. It has to be about them, and it has to kind of participate in them mm. in a certain way because it's about a certain kind of friendship. That was definitely a, a feel I was trying to get at in there. They're honest with each other. And if it's going to be honest, then all those pretensions would go out the window. And it would be like buddies talking, because that's how they talk. Like, they, mm-hmm. they would never perform to each other, because, you know, anybody who knows you knows when you're performing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, turn it off. Like, <laughs> turn it off. Mm-hmm. And these guys would be like that, like, but any intimate relationship. Moves beyond language again. Like, the people are just there. They could, they could sit in a hotel room hours because they've done it hours and hours and hours and hours and hours if it's not respect it's comfort and you did convey that as a successful that way and and winning and speaking of winning best of luck in the uh coming giller uh, race yeah you don't have to win it right yeah. no, i don't know you're I, in the discipline I, that's exactly what it feels like it's, it feels so stunning <laughs> to even be in the discipline well congratulations and best of luck thank you very much I've been speaking with Alexander McLeod, who has most recently written, well, this is your first yeah. book. Yeah, no, mo- no most recent. So collectors, pay attention. This is the first, and these typically are the ones to get, published by Biblioasis. The name of the book is Light Lifting. Thanks again. Thank you.